Ever since we started um, talking about Paul going west out of Israel to spread the gospel, I've been humming an old song by Michael W. Smith. How many of you know Michael W. Smith? Oh, quite a bit of you do. Good. So I thought I'd share at least the chorus with you this morning. Do you know it? Let's listen. How many have heard it? Go west, young man. I think, um, can you just picture Paul and Barnabas as they go west, humming along to that song, Go West, Young Man? No, maybe it's just me. It was either that or Bonanza, okay? And go west they did. And uh, so let's continue west with our brothers Barnabas and Paul and John Mark, shall we? Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13. Last week we saw how the Holy Spirit told the church in Antioch to set aside Paul and Barnabas to go west to proclaim the Word of God. To proclaim the Word, the good news of Jesus Christ. Their first stop, as you recall, was the island of Cyprus. First in Salamis and then in Paphos, two cities in Cyprus. And the results in Cyprus were quite stunning. A false prophet, Elimas, was exposed when he was miraculously made blind for a time. And then in the wake of that sign and wonder, even the heart of a Roman, the Roman of Cyprus, in fact, proconsul Sergius Paulus, in the wake of Paul's sign and wonder, even a Roman's heart was opened to receive the good news, the good teaching of Jesus Christ. I suggested to you that, that even today, God performs signs and wonders through us, His people. Sometimes supernaturally, like He did through Paul, but, but always the sign and wonder of our love that we've just sung about. Our love for God and all others. And so that even today, when we can somehow with God's help say no to self, and instead passionately love God and love others, this touches people. Love gives them cause to pause in the busyness of their life. And they wonder why on earth we would love like that. And perhaps like Sergius Paulus, their hearts too may be opened in that pause that love causes, opened to receive Jesus as their own personal Lord and Savior. If that sounds simple, well, maybe it's because it is simple. (laughs) I mean, Jesus is the one who told us that His yoke, His interpretation of all of Scripture, the how of living Christian life was easy. And the burden was light. And we often make it so complicated, don't we? Jesus summed it up. Love God and love others. And then Peter adds, and when they ask you why you would do such a ridiculous countercultural thing, tell them. Tell them the story of God. Tell them the story of Jesus. Tell them what God has done for you and wants to do for them. Consider saving the 57 non-essential doctrinal issues that Christians can't even agree on for the life of them. 
Consider saving them for later, for heaven's sake, literally for heaven's sake. And just love and tell. You know that we all learn the secret, the complicated secret to proclaiming the gospel. Do you know where we all learn that? We learn that in kindergarten. When did we learn that in kindergarten? We learned that in kindergarten for that weekly Thursday or Friday time of show and tell. Remember? Now be honest, as a kindergarten when you got to do show and tell, that was a big thing, right? And you'd go around the house, you know, I'm going to show and tell about this plant, you know. Your mind, don't you got to do it on a plant? And you come up with like some stuff for show and tell time, right? That's our job as Christians. That's our mission. Show your love and obedience to God by, by how you live your life. Show your love of others by loving them. And when that's got their attention, and it could take some time, tell them about Jesus. Show and tell. Seems often we get that backwards. We show up, we tell and tell and tell, and then if they agree with us, then we decide, all right, now we'll, you know, love on you. That time in kindergarten was not tell and show. Okay. It was show and tell. Show with no strings attached. Show unconditionally. And if and when that floors them, tell them why. Tell them why you're doing it. Why would you love God? And why are you showing such love toward me? And there's a great title or theme for any missions department, any church. What goes on there in missions and in church? It's simple. We show and tell our love of God and others. Even a kindergarten can do it. In fact, especially a kindergarten can do it, right? You want to know about the love of God? Ask a child. Ask a child about why they love Jesus. Ask a child about why they love mom and dad or brother and sister or their friends, and they will show and tell you. Maybe that's a piece, at least, of what Jesus meant when he said that unless we change and become like little children, we'll never even enter the kingdom of heaven, he said. Show and tell your love of God and love of others. Let's watch Barnabas and Paul do that as we continue into the West with their story. From Cyprus, Barnabas, Paul, and John Mark, they get on another boat. And they sail north to the city of Perga. And from there they travel on foot to Pisidian Antioch. Say Pisidian Antioch. Good. Say it five times. No, you don't have to say it five times. There. there were at least three Antiochs at the time in the first century. Antioch, named after Mark Antony. Cities were fond of naming themselves after Caesars because then they thought Caesar would take an interest and send the city lots of money so they could build big things. So at least three Antiochs. So you have to keep your Antioch straight. The city in Antioch is not the Antioch where they first started. Okay, It's not time for them to go home yet. So let's read in Acts 13. Let's continue our story. From Cyprus to Pisidian Antioch, your Bibles are open to chapter 13, book of Acts. I'll start reading at verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. John Mark leaves. We'll talk more of that incident in a few weeks, Lord willing. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. 
On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the Law and the Prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Commentators will divide Paul's speech, which we're just about to read, typically into three parts. First part is a salvation history. A salvation history that tells the story of God through about John the Baptist. That's part one. The second part of Paul's speech is Jesus. That salvation history now that just happened 16 years before in Jesus. And then the third part of Paul's speech I've called is the so what. So what that God's plan's been unfolding. What does it mean now? That's really a good outline, I think, of what we're about to read with Paul's speech. So here's part one, starting at verse 16. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, probably just a gesture that I'm about to speak, so be quiet. Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen, Shema, to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, He led them out of that country. He endured their conduct. Quite literally in Greek, it says, He put up with them for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to His people as their inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. And then God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. And then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin. Probably for sure where Paul got his Hebrew name, Shaul, or Saul, Paul is also of the tribe of Benjamin. And Saul ruled 40 years, and after removing Saul, he made David their king. And he testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. For this man's descendants, God brought to Israel the Savior. Oh, from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. And as John was completing his work, he said, who do you think I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And now Paul begins part two the same way he began part one, by talking to the brothers and addressing the people personally. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and the rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning Him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about Him, they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a tomb. But God raised Him from the dead." And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. Literally, we tell you the gospel. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us. 
their children by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words from Isaiah. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Psalm 16. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. David did. He died. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead, Jesus, did not see decay. Part three, the so what? Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know. I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified, is made right before God. From everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said doesn't happen to you. And he quotes Habakkuk. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. That's the end of Paul's speech. And the reaction, as is typical throughout Acts, is mixed among both Jew and Gentile. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. And then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I made you, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul plays both with earlier verse in Acts where Jesus um, talks to Ananias and with the prophet Isaiah. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. These are the very words of God. Amen? Amen. With such a long passage, there's a number of ways we could go this morning. But I want to focus on one path in particular. I want to focus on this topic of encouragement, which is a type of love. One verse in particular, Acts 13, verse 15. In some way, that verse summarizes Paul's entire message that day. It's when the synagogue rulers say to Paul and Barnabas, Brothers, 
If you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. And then Paul stands up and gives a message of encouragement indeed. Forgiveness. Right standing before God. Grace to all who believe in Jesus Christ. And as Christians, do we know? Do we know that our message is the most encouraging message possible? God understands the importance of an encouraging word. Very first time that the word encourage is used in the Bible, at least in the NIV, is in Deuteronomy. Joshua is about to take over for Moses. Why might he need a word of encouragement? Moses is a pretty tough act to follow, yes? I mean, this is Moses. And he's not only taking over from Moses, he's about to be charged with leading this stubborn group of people into the promised land where seven strong pagan nations and their armies are ready. And God understands the importance of an encouraging word. So God goes to Moses and says, your assistant Joshua, your disciple Joshua will enter the land and encourage him, God says, because he will lead Israel to inherit it. Commission Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him, for he will lead his people. God is such an encourager, and he wants us to be encouragers as well. Psalm 10, probably David praises God by saying, You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You listen to their cry. You encourage them. And in Acts, following Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, we see what happens through encouragement. Luke tells us that the church enjoyed a time of peace and it was strengthened. And then he says, and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, the church grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. God understands that encouragement is important, and so He encourages us and asks us to encourage others in return. It's fair to say that encouragement is a major theme in the book of Acts. I mean, the word encourage appears ten times in Acts, the most in any book of the Bible. And it shouldn't be a surprise. Encouragement's important in the life and witness of a Christian, especially as we try to spread the word, as we try to show and tell. It's especially important even within community. It's tough being a Christian. It's tough living for God and for others and saying no to self. It's tough fending off the devil and his minions who constantly try to discourage us. It's tough battling that pesky human sinful nature that relentlessly begs us to give in to pride. And we need encouragement. The synagogue rulers in Pisidian Antioch that day knew that too. And so they asked Paul and Barnabas for a message of encouragement for the people. And it would seem Paul took that request directly to heart. Not only in his speech, but the letters he wrote later to different churches, they're full of encouragement. He begs the believers in Rome, Corinth, Thessalonica, Ephesus, among others. He begs them in those letters, please encourage each other. He even sends a dear friend of his to Ephesus, a guy named Tychicus. And we read the only reason Paul sent him there was to encourage the people there. I wonder if that day in Pisidian Antioch, Paul smiled. Or maybe 
smirked a bit when the synagogue rulers asked him if he had a message of encouragement. So glad you asked. I mean, after all, he was traveling with Barnabas. Standing right there. What does Barnabas mean? Do you remember? Son of... Don't think too hard. Encouragement. You all know. You just... It's church. You can't talk. I know. Son of encouragement is standing there right next to him. Hey, you guys got a word of encouragement? You have anything encouraging along with you? I mean, there's... This guy's son of encouragement. Maybe he winks at Barnabas. Do we have something encouraging to say, son of encouragement? Or maybe, maybe, that's what prompted the synagogue rulers to even ask for a message of encouragement. Because Barnabas, I'm sure, would have introduced himself, said, Hi, I'm called son of encouragement. Oh, really? Have you got an encouraging word for the people? Maybe they were eager to see why this guy was called son of encouragement. And Barnabas certainly lives up to that name. Barnabas was not only probably or possibly a huge man, but he was also a huge source of encouragement for Paul. By the way, did anyone read ahead and discover why it's possible Barnabas was indeed a large man? Last week I told you that we'll get to why I think maybe Barnabas was a big human being. I won't call on you, so don't be scared to raise your hand. Nobody? Yeah. See, students know a teacher does something like that. They know that the next time the teacher will ask them. And maybe they'll get extra credit. I, I had Dave Beatty standing in the back with coffee tokens for anybody who could tell me that this morning. Yeah. Maybe next time. Because uh, I'm not going to tell you. Look it up. Try Acts 14. But not now. I'll say, oh, Acts 14. We're doing something else. Why was Barnabas a huge source of encouragement to Paul? I'm sure there's lots of ways. I'm sure he whispered words of encouragement. Here's one way at least. I wonder if you've seen it or have heard of this before. Up until now, in Acts 13, verse 13, up until that verse, whenever Paul and Barnabas are mentioned in Acts, Luke always mentions Barnabas first. You notice that? And then from now on, from now on, beginning in Acts 13, verse 13, Paul is always mentioned first. With two exceptions in the entire rest of the book of Acts. And so now you're writing down. Next week he's going to ask if we went and found the two exceptions. You're right! Coffee tokens. If you find it. To get the token, you'll have to explain why do you think Luke reverts back to putting Barnabas first. And maybe you ask, so what? Is that a big deal, the order of names listed in Acts? Well, studies of first century literature like Acts suggest that it is a big deal. First century writers, typically, almost all the time, it's sort of a rule of writing of the day, like we have our rules of writing. They mention in a group of names, more prominent members in the group first, and then the less prominent people second. It's just something that they did. And you look, for example, at the beginning of Acts 13, verse 1. Luke gives a long list of people. And in 13, verse 1, who's mentioned first? 
Who's mentioned first? Barnabas. Thank you. Barnabas is mentioned first. And then a man named Simeon. Now, Simeon's so important, he even has a nickname. Right? Simeon called Niger. Important people have nicknames. A local radio show this week, they're still trying to find a nickname for Bronco quarterback Jay Cutler. They were taking call-ins, so my favorite I had to laugh was Jay Cutlery. Maybe that, that's not, it sounds like a table setting or something, doesn't it? I don't know. Important people have nicknames. Simon has a nickname, Niger. He's listed second. And then there's Lucius. He gets something told about him too. He's from Cyrene. And then next is Manayan. He gets something kind of interesting about him. He has a pretty decent credential. He grew up with Herod and Tippus. You can argue whether that's something to brag about. But it's listed. And then look who's listed last. Almost like he's an afterthought. Tacked there on the end. Seven English alphabet letters. And Saul. Even the Holy Spirit in the next verse mentions Barnabas before Saul. And when Sergius Paulus on Cyprus sends for them, who's mentioned first in verse 7? Barnabas. And after all, it's appropriate thus far, isn't it? Barnabas is a Levite, he's a priest, and, and I'm sorry, you don't get the name Son of Encouragement, a nickname given to you by your peers. You don't get that name Son of Encouragement or Son of Exhortation for you King James fans if you aren't an amazing man of God and probably an amazing teacher in your own right. And what does this big, important man of God do? He takes the time to travel with Paul to Jerusalem soon after Jesus calls Paul. Barnabas travels with Paul to Jerusalem to vouch for him before that rather suspicious group of apostles there. Barnabas, the big, important, reputable leader and teacher, personally travels all the way to Tarsus to fetch Paul back to Antioch with him. And then on Cyprus, in his own backyard, his own home, Barnabas, the reputable leader and teacher, he steps back into the shadows and he gives Paul center stage. Even when granted an audience with the Roman proconsul. It'd be like if, if you were invited to speak with President Bush because you're the president of some big important company. When you get there and it comes time to talk with the president, you step aside. You don't say one word and you let a relatively new member of your team do all the talking. I have a new nickname for Barnabas, Son of Humility. <laughs> Let's stick with Son of Encouragement. How do you suppose Barnabas made Paul feel? I suppose that made Paul feel when Barnabas motions, motioned for Paul perhaps to go ahead. Each and every time that we have recorded in Scripture that they are asked to speak. You see how that might have been a huge source of encouragement to Paul? 
And in Pisidian Antioch that day, Paul certainly had every reason to be encouraged, encouraged by the words of Jesus on the road to Damascus, encouraged by the kindness of Ananias and the believers in that first Antioch church, encouraged by the reception he received from Peter and the gang in Jerusalem, encouraged by his successful escape for his life to Tarsus, encouraged now by the recent success on Cyprus, and encouraged by the humble grace of Big Barney, who constantly said, Go ahead, Paul. You tell them. Is it any wonder that Paul gives that synagogue in Pisidian Antioch the most encouraging message any person could possibly give? See, encouragement does that. Encouragement breeds encouragement. It's contagious. When we're encouraged... We tend to encourage. We tend to pass that on. Now, if encouragement is like that, and it's so valuable, if encourage is indeed so wonderfully contagious, why is it, do you suppose, that it's so difficult for us to do? Why is it so difficult for us, often, to be a source of encouragement to others? Or let me ask the question in a different way. Why is it so often, so much easier to let critical words fly out of our mouth? Why is it so often easier to tear someone down than to build them up? Isn't that truly the opposite of encouragement? To discourage or to deflate or to tear someone down with a critical rather than encouraging spirit? Why is that so easy and encouraging so hard? number of ways we could answer it in a word I think pride plays a huge part what do you mean when we tear someone down or when we find fault or reason to believe someone will fail or, there's something warped in us I think that takes a measure of pleasure in it because it makes us feel a little better about ourselves look at her she's so bossy he smells funny she wears clothes from Goodwill. His yard is a mess. Have you seen it? See, and when we say things like that, I think what we're really saying, the itch inside us that's scratched is, unlike me, she's so bossy. Unlike me, he smells strange. Unlike me, she wears clothes that are discount clothes. Unlike me, he's so messy. And that temptation is so great to tear down because it boosts us a bit. It sets us up as the standard of what is good and normal. We're judge and jury. Look at them. Not like me. That's why it's hard, I think, for us to encourage others. Whenever we do, it cuts against that sinful urge to build ourselves up at the expense of others rather than to build others up at our own expense. There's a saying that I remember being taught as a boy. I couldn't find who the writer is. He or she might be anonymous, lost in time. But there's wisdom in it. It goes like this. It takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. It takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle 
well. Barnabas knew how to play second fiddle really, really well. I bet that encouraged Paul. Do we know how to do that really well? It's hard to be encouraging. It's much easier to be critical. I've got a movie clip that I'd like to show you that I think illustrates this. The movie's called As Good As It Gets. And in it, Melvin. He writes romance novels, which is deeply ironic because the man suffers from the most severe obsessive-compulsive disorder I've ever seen or, or read about. And as a result, it, it's nearly impossible for him to be vulnerable. And it's nearly impossible for him to say any encouraging word to anyone. Instead, you watch as the movie begins and unfolds. This man is painfully critical and insensitive to the feelings of others. And he's built this protective wall of criticism. A critical spirit engulfs him. And that wall is all around him. And then he meets a girl, a waitress named Carol. Carol, because of her own background of, of being around critical men, she too has built this protective wall around her. She's desperately afraid to get close to any man or to trust them because she always gets burned. They always run her down. Somehow she's learned to stand up a bit to critical men, as you'll see. And that one step leads to redemption, ultimately, for both of them. So let's watch. A, a couple of very broken and wounded people. Sounds just like church. <laughs> let's watch. They end up on their first date. See what happens. You look uh, great. You look great. You want to dance? Well, I've been thinking about that since you brought it up before. And? No. Get this place. They make me buy a new outfit. Let you in in a house dress. I don't get it. What? Wait, well, no, wait, why? Where are you going? Why? I mean, I. Uh. No, I didn't mean it that way. I mean, you gotta sit down. You can still give me the dirty look. Just sit down and give it to me. Pay me a compliment, Melvin. I need one. Quick. You have no idea how much what you just said hurt my feelings. Moment someone gets that they need you, they threaten to walk out. A compliment is something nice about somebody else. This is a request from June. And now or never. Okay. Happy anniversary. And mean it. Can we order first? Yeah. Okay. Um, two hard shell crab dinners, pitcher ice cold beer, 
uh, baked or fries? Fries. One baked, one fried. I'll tell your waiter. Okay. Now, I got a real great compliment for you, and it's true. I'm so afraid you're about to say something awful. Don't be pessimistic. It's not your style. Okay. Here I go. Clearly a mistake. I've got this, what, ailment. My doctor, a shrink that I used to go to all the time, he says that in 50 or 60% of the cases, a pill really helps. I hate pills. Very dangerous thing, pills. Hate. I'm using the word hate here about pills. Hate. My compliment is that night when you came over and told me that you would never... Um, um, all right, well, you were there. You know what you said. Well, my compliment to you is the next morning I started taking the pills. I don't quite get how that's a compliment for me. You make me want to be a better man. That's maybe the best compliment of my life. Well, maybe I overshot a little because I was aiming at just enough to keep you from walking out. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to be critical it's almost like something we do even you know it's, it's, it's conversational you sit down in a restaurant you look it's almost like to make conversation in our culture we tend to Look at it's so easy to do that. Hard to speak words of encouragement. Even a, a simple compliment, especially one did you hear it that admits we're not all that perfect after all. When we can do that though, lives change. They change. School has started. Woohoo! Right, guys? <laughs> so I've got this word for, um, for parents and teachers and coaches especially. Work hard to be an encourager of children. Work hard to avoid being critical. Work hard when you look at a teenager, when you look at a child... Work hard to see first and foremost that, and overall, the, the image of God that they are created in. Parents and teachers, when a child comes home with a D minus, 
I've got news for you. It seems like some, some of us need to hear this news. I know I do from time to time. They already know that that's bad. What purpose do you suppose is served when we feel like we need to remind them that that's bad? D minus, why that's terrible. What's wrong with you? No son, daughter of mine is going to get a D minus. How about instead something like, hmm, how about we try some things that might help the next time? What do you think would help? Or maybe tell the story of your own D minus one day. You know you got them. Or maybe tell a story about where you didn't do very well. And I'm sure you have wonderful ideas I haven't even thought of. Please share them with me about encouraging approaches to take. But the point is, work hard to be encouraging and not condemning and critical. And coaches, can we talk? When your student athlete drops the ball, I've got news for you. They know they dropped it. And they know that that's bad. You don't really need to point that out. How could you do that? I hate watching that. And there they stand, crestfallen. Instead, if your student athlete blows it, if your team blows it, if they lose, maybe Coach Carter's approach or something like it might be a better idea. Let's watch. Oh, well, not quite the storybook ending, huh? Not for us anyway. But you men played like champions. You never gave up. Champions hold their heads high. What you achieve goes way beyond the win-loss column or what's going to be written on the front page of the sports section tomorrow. You've achieved something that some people spend their whole lives trying to find. What you achieved is that ever-elusive victory within. And gentlemen, I am so proud of you. Four months ago when I took the job at Richmond, I had a plan. That plan failed. I came to coach basketball players and you became students. I came to teach boys and you became men. For that, I thank you. If someone walked in this door right now and offered me the coaching job at any school in the state of California, you know which team I choose? St. Francis. <laughs> Can you? Richmond? Rich what?
rich men. Rich what? Rich men. Rich what? Rich men. Where are we from? Rich men. What's my hometown? Rich men. What we love? Rich men. Rich what? Rich men. They lost. And the person they looked up to said, I'm proud of you for trying. And thank you. Now, I know tough love is important. And those of you familiar with this movie know that Coach Carter had his tough love moments, too. (laughs) But when we... Exercise tough love. Please work hard to remember the love part of tough love. Don't belittle a child and justify it by hiding behind the tough love explanation. When you practice tough love, let's do it lovingly. Let's do it while keeping the child's dignity intact, for heaven's sake. Please. Remember, This is a helpful reminder for me. You're not all that perfect either. (laughs) I'll leave you this morning with one of my all-time favorite quotes about encouragement. It comes to us from Christian writer John Maxwell. Maxwell writes, Remember, man does not live on bread alone. Sometimes he needs a little buttering up. Play second fiddle. Butter people up. And see what God will do. As Christians, we have the most encouraging word ever to bring to a world desperate for God. Forgiveness. Justification. Hope. A God who is madly and deeply in love with them. And God's given us the perfect model of what it means to encourage. His name's Jesus. And in this story today, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, encouraged Paul and others just like Jesus. Let's do it too. Encourage each other. Encourage others. And let's see what God will do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the encouraging life of Jesus the Messiah, for the encouragement that's to be gained that the darling of heaven left and became one of us, came to die to fix everything one day. Remind us of that. Remind us of that when we forget it, when things are going just great. And remind us of that, Father, that things as they are now are not eternal. When things are going bad. 
give us that encouraging word. And help us in turn be an encouragement to each other in Christian community, but also an encouragement to a world that doesn't know you. Give us that opportunity, please, to speak a word of love, a word of encouragement into a life that's lost. Use us. Use us, would you please, to reach someone who doesn't know you with the loving knowledge of Jesus, your son. Use us, please. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. And all God's people said, Amen. Praise God. If you'd like to pray with someone this morning, come on up. We'd love to pray with you. You'll find some folks here eager to meet you and to pray.